0: Hi, Osha here. Thanks for downloading the show. I appreciate you for being here. Now, obviously you like to listen to podcasts because you've got a podcast app on your phone. If you listen to podcasts, you'll know that podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So there's a couple of people who help me make this show, namely Andy, my audio producer, and Rachel, my exec producer. And I need to pay those people because they're very, very good at what they do. Now, you might be about to hear an ad. If you hear an ad, thank you. You help me put food on the table for Andy and Rachel. If you don't hear an ad, ripper. You're going to hear Lane Beachley say something cool. Let's roll the dice.
1: Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why
0: United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary
2: plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: If we stay stuck in how, we stay stuck in fear. When we're in fear, we tend to procrastinate. And then that leads to questioning, is it even worth doing? Is it something that I want to do? Like I'll question my ability to do it. Can I do it well enough? And so I'm comparing myself either to someone else that can do it better or a future or past version of myself that couldn't do it. And so therefore that validates my belief that it's not worth doing. And that belief then feeds all these rationalizations, which is a whole bunch of rational lies. And so that just procreates itself and you stay in this stuck cycle of fear and that is all fueled by asking the question, how am I going to do it? When you reframe the question and ask yourself, why do I want to do it? That creates clarity, which then fuels your discipline, which then increases your levels of empathy, which then makes you feel more focused and fulfilled, which then gives you more clarity, discipline, empathy, and focus. That's fun. So if you find yourself in a state of fear, even on days when you don't feel like doing it, you go back to your why, you're like, okay, this is what I'm doing.
0: That is world champion surfer and author Lane Beachley, and this is episode three hundred and sixty nine of Better Than Yesterday. Hello, and welcome to better than yesterday. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsburg, and this is Ep 369 of the show. 369 shows. Uh, Lane Beachley's on the show today. She's bloody incredible. Uh, more about Lane in just a moment. If you've never listened to the show, this podcast just does what it says on the box. Something you hear today will help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. Something that me or Lane or one of my guests will say, well, you'll, you'll hear it and go, oh, you know what? Yeah. that's And then today you'll go, eh, today was a good day. That's it. That's, this show's been running for since 2013. I'm here twice a week. Mondays I speak with a guest. Fridays I speak with you. And, um, yeah, that's what we're here to do each and every week, twice a week. If you want to get in touch with me, super easy, send us your email at gmail.com. Who am I? I'm a TV host and an author and a dad and a stepdad from Sydney, Australia, and I've been making this podcast since 2013. And I'm also currently uh, helping raise money for World Bicycle Relief. So if you've got a person that's uh, having a birthday this year or had a birthday this year or starting a new job or expecting a baby or needs to be told congratulations or you're fired or I'd like to go out with you or whatever, super easy. Just go to cameo.com slash and for a small amount of money that we will then donate to World Bicycle Relief, I'll sing a song for you. And there you go. It's a fun way to, to make some coin. And it's a fun way to raise some dollars and um, buy some bikes for some people that really need them because there's, there's parts of the world where mobility means freedom and safety, and um, a bicycle is a really great way to get that. So cameo.com slash Washington please uh, head over there. So, yeah, I hope you're good today, and uh, thanks very much to everybody that listened to the episode on Friday, Dealing With The Fuckets, and I hope you're you're trying to halt H-A-L-T. Uh, You'll know what that means if you've listened to Friday's episode. I mean, that's working out for you pretty well. Before we get into Lane Beachley's story, if chats with influential surfers are your thing, or you're kind of interested in surfing as a metaphor for life, you may want to check out episode 180 with Taylor Steele, one of the most important filmmakers. Of his generation there's going to be changes and it's how you deal with those changes and i think i haven't been the best filmmaker out of the bunch and i haven't been the most rewarded but i've i've been able to change i think my strength is the fact that i'm open to new ideas open to change open to trying to prove myself and not really getting stuck on trying to get the praise from the 90s or whatever i want to just improve and get better And I know that there's going to be new obstacles each time. Taylor Steele, it's an incredible chat. Uh, You can find it episode 180. Just scroll back through the shows until you'll find Taylor Steele. It's cracking to listen. Like, you know who Kelly Slater is because of Taylor Steele. All right? Incredible. Incredible. And Rob Machado. Uh, It goes on. Taylor Knox. It goes on. It goes on. It's a fantastic chat. He's a great bloke. Super intense cat. It was amazing to sit in a hotel room with him and and just pick his brains for an hour and a bit. It was bananas. So, yeah, episode 180 with Taylor Steele. So, let me tell you about my guest today. Lane Beachley is, I guess she's, there's no other way to say this. She is the most successful female surfer in history. Actually, she's the only surfer, male or female, no boys have done this, and she's the only female that's ever done it, to win six consecutive world titles between uh, 98 and 2003. In 2006, she won a seventh in 2006, and she retired from the ASP, the World Tour, in 2008. She's got an incredible story, and to win six consecutive world titles in any sport requires immense focus and and clarity and ways of thinking about what you can control and then teaching yourself to deal with the things that you cannot control. Because ultimately that's what a wave's doing. You have no say in what the face of the wave is doing. You can only prepare yourself as best as possible to handle whatever the wave brings you and trust in your training and trust in your reactions and trust in in what you've got. And also in some of the waves that Lane surfs, the consequences are death. That is no exaggeration the consequences are death in some of the waves that Lane has surfed. So to say that the stakes are high, (laughs) you can't say the stakes are higher than what they are. So the way that she holds herself, the way that she carries herself, her mindset that got her to win six world titles is something that she has now been able to, pivot and share with other people that might not ever get in the water, might not ever stand on a surfboard, might not ever even jump in the sea because they might be afraid of the sea. Lane is taking a lot of the things that she has learned and a lot of the techniques that she's developed to have such incredible success in her field. And she's teaching that. She's teaching the things that she's learned and the mental fortitude and the, and the focus and the strength and and the, the lessons that she learned. She's teaching that now. She's got an academy awakeacademy.com.au, awake as in I was asleep and now I am. So Awake Academy, and that's where you'll find Lane Beachley. She's an author, she's written a bunch of books, she's a great human being. You'll hear her and I talk quite a bit about the the times that we spend together when I was uh, working uh, in a former job. I spent a bit of time working on the world tour, and um, yeah, there's actually quite a moment where I grabbed a piece of memorabilia, and she and I talked through it. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, she's a, a great human being and I'm so happy that she is prepared to share the lessons that she's learned. I mean, any any athlete that gets to the level of winning, you know, one world title, let alone six, seven world titles, any athlete that gets to that point, clearly there's a lot of work that has to be done out of the water or off the field or off the course or when you're not in the game, all right? There's so much work that has to be done to get your own self out of the way to allow your true potential and your your ability to shine through. And that's the stuff that Lane is able to teach now. She's managed to figure out how to how to teach it because a lot of people can't teach it. A lot of people can't or speak or tell you what it is. They're just like, I don't know, I just hit the ball. Or, I kick the ball. or I just run that way. They're not able to tell you how they get their head in the space that allows them to do the things that they do. But Lane's figured it out and it's really freaking good. You can find out more at awakeacademy.com.au. I know you'll love Lane Beachley. I think she's fucking great. She's such a cool human being and I'm very happy that I get to live in a world that she's in because um yeah, she's a freaking star. She really helped me a lot as you'll hear me talking about. Yeah, she's a great human being. She's an absolute great human being. So If you want to find out more about Lane, awakeacademy.com.au. You'll find her on Instagram, Lane Beachley, L-A-Y-N-E Beachley, B-E-A-C-H-L-E-Y. There's only one thing I'd just like to say before we get kicking off. On the day, Lane and I were only able to, because of COVID, were only able to connect over a video call. And the software that we were using absolutely screwed us on the audio. So sometimes software decides to give you a better picture and crappier sound. Sometimes it'll give you better sound and a crappier picture. On this day, boy, we got screwed on the sound. And I'm real sorry, but that's what we ended up getting. So pretend it's not a video call. Pretend it's a phone call and you'll be fine. (laughs) So, But everything that Lane says is still of Incredible gravity and, and importance, and I'm I'm really grateful that she's on the show today. So please enjoy this fantastic conversation with the inspirational Lane Beachley. How are you today, Lane? You all right? I'm well, thanks, Osh. How are you? I'm I'm good. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm okay. I'm. Um,
2: <laughs> you're good. You're okay. You're okay. You're good. Which well, one is that So you're oscillating. I am. You're oscillating. Oh,
0: Good Lord. <laughs> Okay, that's a ah, – I'm just going to let that sink in. Um, i created
2: a whole new word. Didn't
0: sleep very well last night because I'm um, – Why not? My brain – God bless it.
2: Can't shut it down?
0: It's – um because I'm getting a total hip replacement on the right-hand side in <gasps> a month. And my brain's oh, going, you don't need it, mate. You don't need it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be sweet. You'll be fine. You don't need it. You don't need it. And I'm like, dude, come on. I'm on the scooter and I'm riding to a meeting and it hurts when I go over bumps. I need it. Like I can't sleep, it. can't sleep without drugs, and it's like oh, it. anyway. So it was one of those arm wrestles, and um, right, it did get me to think. And lost? Uh, uh, no, I, I won eventually. I, I, you know, okay, so I'm still getting the surgery.
3: <laughs> it, was, <Yes. laughs> it was
0: one of those moments where your brain comes to visit when you least expect it. You're like around three a.m. going, Psst, "Hey, I've got this, oh. I've got this idea that's going to keep you awake." Why? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guess why? You don't need it. And I remembered. I knew I was talking to you today. I remember when I woke up this morning, there was a point when, right around when I first got diagnosed with um, social phobia. I, I remember coming to your place when you lived in the city and mm. s- sitting on your balcony and trying to ask your advice. Like, I don't know what to do, I can't stop thinking about this stuff. And I remember trying to talk to you about it right when you lived by the ships there, and yeah, I,
2: at Kirk's house at Potts Point,
0: yeah. And I kind of, I guess I should say, I'm sorry I did that because I probably should have seen a doctor instead. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I'm always here to help you. Did I give you, I wonder if I gave you any decent advice back
0: then. No, no, you did. You did. did uh, yeah, you did. You you sent me off to a bloke who I found quite helpful. That's good. Yeah, he he taught me some interesting visualization things and some interesting meditation things and this little thing I used to do with my fingers. Yeah, that. He taught me that stuff. What is that? It was a trigger he showed me. Tapping. Yeah. Like
2: a tapping thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. He showed me a trigger, a physical trigger. And I used to do it for years. I'd tap my thumb and my forefinger together. Like I would get into a very focused, very calm, very meditative, almost, you know, sure state. And if I was ever nervous or worried, I would be able to tap Mm. my finger like that. And my body would go, oh, when we do this, we feel this way. And to kind of trick my brain into thinking that Mm. that's what's going on. Anyway, I eventually saw a doctor and ended up on meds and all kinds of things. But, yeah. Mm. Thanks, though. Thank you for trying. You don't
3: need them. You don't need them.
0: <laughs> I do. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do need one. Let
2: me meds. be your brain. You don't need the
3: meds. You don't
0: need them. <laughs> been through. God, I've been through that.
3: <laughs> Get
0: over it. Come I've on. Get I've been through that, and I try to explain it like I try and explain it like this, you know, like them. Mm. Yeah, sure, you can try and win the Tour de France without taking drugs, but <laughs>
2: unless you, yeah.
0: you know, back in the '90s, early 2000s, you could try, but the rest of the peloton would so say, like, you can take them, but they mm. don't do the work for you. You still got to peddle your balls off to get to the top of the mountain if you want to try and win the race. Like, you still got to do the work. But I I needed the meds to help me do the work. And I still do. I still do need the meds to help me do the work. And it's been really good, actually. Because I was off for about a year and a half. Yeah, I was off for about a year and a half. And then...
2: And what happened?
0: It was right around six weeks before Wolfie got born and I started to lose my brain again. And Audrey took one look at me and went, I'm going to need you to around.
3: Mm. And And focused.
0: Yeah, go and see your doctor, please. And I knew... Mm. I knew enough because that same voice that woke me up last night, is like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't. And, and, and <laughs> I knew enough to go, okay, pal. She needs we'd, drugs. She we'd needs better drugs. listen to her.
2: <laughs> Both of us.
0: <laughs> yeah, and off we went and it's a lot better. It's a lot better. Okay.
3: Well, that's good.
2: It's
0: so good to see you. I'm so grateful to have you on the, on the show. I think the first time we actually properly met was in the back of a panel van in Tahiti.
3: <laughs> At Choford.
0: Driving from the airport. We all just piled no in. Yeah, we all piled in yeah. the back of this panel van.
2: At like 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if that was the same year that I'm pretty sure actually we all piled into the back of that caravan, that, that I don't know if you could call it a van because it was more like a open-air ute with a couple of bench seats. Well, yeah, it's an itch, a look,
0: it's an interesting, you know, it's a country in the South Pacific and it's got wheels and an yeah. engine and they just go, seatbelts, work
2: yeah. Well, yeah.
0: we'll right. But then we
2: dropped, We got dropped at a house because it's, uh, there's no hotels there, so no. that you just billeted into people's lounge rooms. Yeah. And I remember when we got dropped at this house, and because it's a single lane in and out, and it's full of dogs and chickens and roosters, and they drive very slowly because it's a very narrow, windy road, That so it took us like, what, two hours uh-huh. or something to get to the house. And then when we got there, the lady was so excited to have us that she took us out into the backyard at 4 o'clock in the morning, while well, it was very dark, to show us her robotong tree, which is like the Tahitian version of a lychee. She's like, oh, robotong, robotong. We're like, oh, seriously, can we go to bed now? Like, <laughs> Great. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but awesome. I love the sound of it. I'm pretty stoked to be here. Can you give me my mattress and the laundry floor, a pillow, a blanket, I'll be done. The give me gl- some earplugs because I don't want to hear the roosters and the dogs and perhaps the mosquito
0: nets. <laughs> yeah, the glamour of the pro tour.
2: Wow, wasn't it amazing? <laughs>
0: the glamour of the pro surfing tour. That, that particular trip really opened my eyes because I had been around, I was working at Channel V at the time and... I had been around the pro scene a little bit with Channel V in Australia, but I'd never seen it in isolation from everything else. And when you're out in those kind of places, for people who don't know, Chopu is a surf break in Tahiti. It's probably one of the most deadly breaks on the planet easily, you know. Of the top three, it's there on any given day. It's terrifying. Hell oh,
3: yeah.
2: It Ter- is terrifying.
0: Terrifying. And
2: it has the capacity to rip your face off.
0: I heard that story. I heard mm. that story. It was told to us by the guy that looked after us. And, yeah. you know, when everyone that travels with a tour is away from, like it's not like burly Heads. There's not 300,000 people parked on the beach and CFM blasting music and a band in the afternoon and all that kind of stuff. No. It's... Maybe with the men and women competitors together, it's probably, I don't know, 80 surfers, maybe 80, 90 surfers tops, a couple Mm. of people from the surf companies, some media, water patrol, some tech guys, I don't know, maybe 200 people. Max. 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 And everyone mm. knows each other. Oh, judges,
2: judges. <laughs> judges, officials.
0: Everyone knows each other and that's it. It's this <laughs> yeah. tiny little microcosm of a travelling circus and to observe it. And it was really evident to me, I found it the other day because we're cleaning out, I've got the heat drawer, I've got the drawer from oh, the, that day.
2: No way. Yeah, I do. The men's or the women? The women's. Oh.
0: Yeah. And um, where is it?
2: No, don't do it now.
0: I could find it. I could be a minute, and I'll be right back. Okay. okay. I'll be a minute. Okay. Stand by. Talk amongst Stand
2: yourselves. by. Right. So, Osh has gone off to find a Heath drawer that may have, gives me reason to believe that he could be quite the hoarder. And then looking at the shelves behind him gives me strong validation of that belief that, yes, indeed, he is a hoarder. I mean, who keeps a heat drawer from 1998, I believe this was? I should go and play. That's who does. So let's see what he's got. I know I didn't make it very far in this round, so that's why I don't really want a reminder of how I performed in that particular contest in that particular year because I wasn't very dominant. It may have something to do with the slumber party on the lounge room floor of this particular person's house or the roosters that crowed right. all night because they didn't what care happens that's any consideration for whether the sun was up or not. Oh my goodness, it's, that's your day pack from when you're on the boat. That's right. Yeah. Look at you go, the billabong. Yeah. <laughs> what year is this?
0: 2003.
2: Oh, it's 2003. Yeah.
0: Here we go. Where is it? Oh, here it is. It's a dry bag that mm. we had. And here's the. I wonder here.
2: if it still works.
0: Here's the. Um, Are you a hoarder? No. But here's the Mm. heat. No, but
2: I've got a heat draw from 2003 with a dry bag. Because it's cool as shit.
3: No, I'm not a
0: hoarder. Where were you? In round one, heat one, you surfed against Rochelle Ballard and Rebecca Woods. Oh. Yep. And it was there the first day. Yeah, wild. Then what the
2: scores
0: there? That's just the opening draw. No,
2: it's
0: just the opening draw. But I do recall that. You know, when you look at it, and this is, I remember this is what I want to kind of talk to you about today because I'm holding this thing in my hands. Okay. Round one.
2: I'm I'm going to go get the results. Oh. It's in my book.
0: It's in your book. Of course it is. Yeah. All right. Well, your book has probably got a lot to say about this as well then, because when you look at the prize money.
2: Yeah. Was there any?
0: $2,000 is the prize money for round two. 2500 <laughs> for round 3, the quarterfinals 3000, the semifinals 4000. Yeah. And I just like
2: And who what what's the finalist?
0: Uh, it's cut off.
2: 30 seconds. <laughs> it's
0: cut off by the dodgy photocopy job that someone's done uh, in the back of a yeah. a bureau. Not worth recording. But I remember seeing that. and I remember seeing the mm. kind of conditions they were expecting you to paddle out in and the kind of things that were you were being asked to risk. And I remember looking at that sheet of paper that I just held in my hands and going That like for a couple grand? There's no fucking yeah. way I'd do that.
2: Hello, it's for the love, not the money. Oh.
0: <laughs> How old were you? when did you yeah. first realise the disparity between the prize money and when did it make uh, when did your first what, time you went? What, Hang on a sec. This is the same one?
2: When I joined the tour in nineteen ninety? Yeah. Yeah. It was shit. I mean it was ridiculous. How much was the – I don't know. Oh, we didn't record the prize money. It's a shame. Should have done that in my book. <laughs> I've got it in my ledger. <laughs> I've got my first ledger. But the prize money disparity, yeah, became very clearly apparent from the start. Yeah. Then also the sponsorship dollars and opportunities for life after sport, mm. that became very apparent. The representation – the opportunities to compete in reasonable conditions, the support of the governing body, like all of it was very focused and catered toward the men. Women, we were just the sideshow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, it's interesting, I remember watching the conditions, you talked about conditions and the, the conditions that they asked you to go out and, and start that heat in, the direction mm-hmm. of the swell, I remember the wave was closing out really hard and there was a couple of people that went over the falls and I remember interviewing them afterwards and it like someone had attacked them with a cheese grater and mm-hmm. some of these women were so torn up. I'm like, you wouldn't run the men competition when the wave was coming that direction to the reef. What are you doing asking these ladies the to year
2: prior to that actually 2002 in the final because i won it in 2001 and the conditions were quite favorable that year for us but in 2002 it got to the semi-finals and keala kenley and i had both made it through the semi-finals into the final and after the semi-finals the swell jacked up a couple of feet so it started around six to eight jacked up to the 10 foot rogue set turned very west which is just predominant closeouts. and this reef is I Not only is it jagged and sharp, it's fire coral, so it burns you and grates you. And the boys suggested, It looks too shit for us. You guys keep going for it. You you know, we'll send the girls out. And it was so dangerous, so unethical to send us out there. Like it's just unacceptable that we surfed it. But we felt like we had no choice, so we just endured it. And that's what we did year after year after year. We just copped it, turned the shit, send the girls out. So, quite insulting now we look back on it. But fortunately, things have changed and the girls don't have to endure that anymore.
0: How is it different now?
2: Well, now they have a commissioner that represents the women's tour and a commissioner that represents the men's tour. They have a governing body that wholeheartedly support and value female athletes. They provide them with equal opportunity to surf in equal conditions, in equal locations. And they don't cancel events to save money to inject into the men's tour, which is what they used to do to us, cancel our events to inject the the
0: money back into the men. Right. I guess it was things like that because I I vaguely recall the final or one of the heats on this year because me and Jacko were out in the boat watching it happen and we watched a whole heat go by and by then it wasn't three people in a heat, it was two people in a heat. I can't remember where it was but no one peddled into a set.
2: Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That happened quite often because the girls were that shit scared that they did not want to embrace their fear. They did not want to threaten their own lives. Chopu was a venue that very few girls embraced, let alone wanted to go to. And I must admit, it scared the shit out of me too. But for me to succeed and become the champion that I uh, vowed to become or decreed, then it was important for me to embrace those fears and, and overcome them. So I made friends with the reef by first cutting myself on it many times and then taking off my leg rope and allowing my board to drift and then diving down and just exploring it and getting familiar with it. And then I was able to make friends with it. And then I was, then I stopped fearing it. Then I stopped hitting it until, of course, we were sent out in 10-foot surf when it was wet, And then <laughs> that was inevitable to hit it countless times.
0: Hang on a sec. Take me through that because this is – it sounds to me like you're describing the kind of thing that my shrink makes me do when it's exposure therapy time.
2: Oh, They don't shock you or something.
0: No, no, no. Exposure therapy, like obsessive compulsive disorder, is one of the things that's going on with my head. And exposure therapy is a very successful way to treat that. It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. You just have to learn with, you learn to be with the discomfort of the thing. All right. You learn to be with the discomfort of, yeah.
2: By consistently exposing yes. yourself
0: to it, yes, yes, um, yeah. In the same, right. wh-
2: well, I, I've subconsciously learned exposure therapy without actually being put through
3: therapy. So put myself through. It.
0: So tell me about that, because not everyone's going to paddle into this this wave, but surely everyone knows like it could be an exam. It could be a job interview. It could be a date. It could be parent teacher night. It could be, I don't know, going to see the divorce lawyer. It could be, I don't know, something that you're afraid of that you've got a long time to think about. Chopu, the wave we're talking about is a kilometer offshore. Long time to think about what's about to happen (laughs) as you're paddling out there. When did you realize I'm going to have to do something about this? I'm going to have to get on top of this.
2: Probably the third time I went there. So the first two times I just allowed my fear to control me and therefore I had a horrible time. I didn't enjoy being there. I certainly didn't embrace the opportunity of competing out there. It was almost like an obligation. All right, go out there, catch a couple of waves, do what you can. It was a matter of survival. Yeah, it was survive, no thrive. And uh, the following couple of years after that, I was like, okay, I I want to do well out here because it's obviously going to be a long-term part of the tour. It's an opportunity for women to shine. It's an opportunity for us to show what we're made of. We're, we've been in these shitty beach break conditions for too long and it's not really highlighting the strengths or, or abilities of the athlete. So let's step it up. So first I took ownership of the fact that I was getting in my way. Then I thought, okay, what do I need to do? Like what's my predominant fear? My predominant fear is hitting the wrecks. Like that is it. And I've got plenty of proof points on my skin in the names of Chofu tattoos (laughs) where I can see evidence of where I've hit the reef many a time. So, okay, what's my predominant fear? Hitting a reef. What can I do to get okay with that? What can I do to get okay with that fear? Let's go and actually explore the reef. Let's go and see what it's made of, where the most jagged parts are. Are there any points in that reef where you could potentially avoid hitting it? In the event that you do get caught inside, where do you think the best place to be? I'd always feared being washed into the lagoon because I had to go over dry coral, but then I got familiar with the dry coral bits, and I thought, actually, they're okay to walk on. So I just made friends with it. I got familiar with it, because the best way to overcome a fear is actually to shine a light at it and say, hello, (laughs) friends. Hello, unfamiliar friends. I don't like you, but I need to learn to like you. And so then I got to like the reef. And Well, I didn't like the reef. I I was lying. I mean, I became familiar with it, and I went, okay. I already know that if I hit it, it hurts. It scars me. It burns me. It cuts me, I believe. It's painful. And in Tahiti, they treat scars cut, reef cuts with fresh lime juice, nothing else. Let's just cut open a lime, cut it in half and squeeze it all over you, which you might as well pour acid over my skin. I mean, it's excruciating. And then, yeah, it was a matter of just, okay, that's what I'm dealing with. I know the arena I'm going into. So now what can I do to... Not avoid hitting the reef, but what do I need to focus on to succeed, which success means surfing a heat without coming out with blood on my skin. So then I focused on my positioning on the waves, where I paddle into the waves, my eye line to maintain my line on the wave. So, yeah, I focus on all the things that I can control. And it's the classic cliche, but what can you control? Same thing when you're going through a a pandemic or a really challenging period in your life is what can I control? And so it starts with what's the outcome and then break it down to the process and then how do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself as someone that can do it or do you identify yourself as someone that cannot?
0: What I love about that whole process, Lane, is that you started with the why. You started with why do I want to do this? I want to do this because I want to show that the women on the tour deserve more than the shitty beach breaks we've been getting we deserve more and with that in your heart it feels to me when you describe it that that is bigger than your reason for not doing it your reason for fear your reason for being reluctant to paddle into a wave well actually no the reason i want to do this is bigger than all those things
2: yeah absolutely good summary thank you
0: i'm here to help but it strikes me (laughs) of how important it is to if there's something you really want to do if you identify the why the really strong why it's out there's no question you'll get it done
2: Well, the why gives it the clarity. Hmm. If we stay stuck in how, we stay stuck in fear. And I have this thing called the fear to fun model. And what it looks like is if when we're in fear, we tend to procrastinate. That's one of the things that I know I'm very familiar with. If I'm fearful of either having a conversation or doing something differently or committing to something that I feel uncomfortable about, I will procrastinate about it for as long as I can possibly procrastinate. And then that leads to questioning. Is it even worth doing? Is it something that I want to do? Like I'll question my ability to do it. Can I do it well enough? And then that leads to that level of uncertainty. Well, maybe I shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't, it's all too hard. And then I will find validation of that point through comparison and judgment. And so I'm comparing myself either to someone else that can do it better or a future or past version of myself that couldn't do it. And so therefore that validates my belief that it's not worth doing. And that belief then feeds all these rationalizations, which is a whole bunch of rational lies. And so that just procreates itself. And you stay in this stuck cycle of fear. And that is all fueled by asking the question, how am I going to do it? When you reframe the question and ask yourself, why do I want to do it? That creates clarity, which then fuels your discipline, which then increases your levels of empathy, which then makes you feel more focused and fulfilled, which then gives you more clarity, discipline, empathy, and focus. That's fun. So if you find yourself in a state of fear, you need to ask yourself, why do I want to overcome it? Or, "What? yeah, why am I doing this? And then that's, that sense of why will give you the clarity and the impetus. Even on days when you don't feel like doing it, you go back to your why. You're like, okay, this is why I'm doing it.
0: The, <laughs> the amount of wisdom that I can hear is going on, <laughs> what you're telling me. You know, I tell people all the time, like you don't accidentally find yourself at the top of Mount Everest, right? You don't accidentally find yourself with six world titles in a row and then another one a few years later. Like this is all a very deliberate and very planned and very disciplined result of an extraordinary process. Like, let's be honest here. The amount of time that you're on a wave is what? 12 seconds? 21 seconds? 8 to 12 seconds, all right? And if this heat here... All right, let's say you catch four four waves of heat that is, you're getting scored on or whatever. So that's one, two, three, four. That's like maybe a minute of your life between paddling out for the first heat. But, yeah, and you're out there for
2: 25 to 30
0: minutes. Yeah. So the actual surfing part is this tiny, 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 tiny little bit of your life, but it's everything else that you do to get you so that when you're on that wave, and it's I love it because it's such a great metaphor because when you're on it, like... You just have to deal with what it gives you.
2: Yeah, where you look is where you go. Yeah. So you've got to stay present. you got to stay aware. You've got to stay committed. You've also got to be very adaptable. You can paddle into a wave with all the greatest plans in the world, but sooner or later or maybe when you least expect it, the wave changes direction or it closes out on you or it pushes you into the reef or you fall on the takeoff. And Chopu has such a fine – there's zero room for error yeah. out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: it teaches you a lot. Surfing definitely teaches me a lot. There's that great line: uh, "No plan survives first contact with the enemy." <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, and that's a day out at Chowbent.
0: You can have all the plans, or Pipeline, or J Bay, or anywhere. You know, you can plan, like, I'm going to have the best day of my life, but you really, the wave is a mystery. It's like a day in your life is a mystery. You can have an idea of what's going to happen. I'll hopefully drop, yeah. the, drop the kids at school, and they're going to go to the shops, and they're going to go and hit the gym, and they're going to go home, I'm going to do all these Zoom calls, I'm going to take care of that spreadsheet, I'm going to know the kids are going to come home, da 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 da, da. and then suddenly someone rear-ends you on the way home. Like, mm. what? <laughs>
2: well, there goes all my plan Out the window.
0: It's how you deal with the, the bits you didn't plan that are more important in some ways than, you know, this predictability of life that we've set up for ourselves in this modern world. But surfing is such a, God, I love it. It's such a great metaphor. So (laughs) not everyone's a surfer and not everyone's going to paddle out into the waves. Maybe there's a heap of people listening that have never been deeper than their waist in the ocean. There might be people who've never, don't even know how to swim, but you're aware of a thing called surfing and you're aware that there's a point where you are paddling and I guess you could relate it to like a bungee jump or whatever. Like there's a point where you have Mm. to decide, am I going to go? What have you learned about once you've got your why and once you've got Mm. your decision that, okay, what have you learned about committing to that decision in your life? What have you learned about what are the results of committing and what are the results of going, uh-huh? (laughs)
2: I don't want to do this. Mm. (laughs) The results of committing are growth and the results of pulling back are stagnation and validation because it's your ego that says you're not good enough, that you can't do it. And so then you pull back and then your ego says, see, I told you so. You stay right there, girl. I can predict every move you're going to make now. I got this. That's your ego.
0: Holy shit. (laughs) <laughs> what? I've never heard it explained like that. Oh, really? Yeah, that's so the, true, the though. Does it makes It <laughs> makes perfect sense. Oh, good. Because, you know, if you were, I don't know, say you're riding a horse and you go, am I going to jump over this log or, I don't know, mm. say I'm going to ask this person out, all right? That's the yeah, paddling yeah. into Chopu that everyone can relate to, all right? I'm going to yeah. ask this person out. Mm. Or, or I'm not going to ask this person out because I don't feel I'm good enough and therefore – that was lucky. I could have been rejected.
2: Got the bullet there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you never know what might have happened. You never know what growth you might have had because of that.
2: Sounds like my first date was Kirk,
0: really. <laughs> what? Tell me about that.
2: Well, it's just that we were set up on a blind date by John Stevens, and the whole reason that I accepted the challenge was because I made a promise to John that I would take Kirk on a date. I mean, I had zero interest in taking Kirk out on a date. Like. Well, I was a fan as a 14-year-old, and now at 30 years of age, he's asking me to take out this geeky, dorky rock star dude, who at the time was about 14 kilos overweight, balding, pasty white, oversized Hawaiian shirt-wearing barefoot rock star. I was like, seriously? This doesn't appeal to me. Yes, I'm being shallow and very judgmental and critical, but still, it doesn't appeal. But. John was adamant that Kirk and I would get along. That would be the perfect combination because we've both been very successful. We understand all of the stuff that comes along with that. We've both been at the top of the world at something. We love to laugh. We have a great sense of humor. We don't take ourselves very seriously. But they were the only commonalities, quite honestly. So when I did... Uh, fulfill the obligation of asking Kirk out on a date, the whole time I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I do not want to do this. I really have no desire to do this. There's no connection. There's no chemistry. I want nothing to do with this. However, the why at that point was I promised John that I would take Kirk out. So I persevered and I went up to Kirk and I asked him for his number, which he thought was very forthcoming. However, he understood the premise of the game we were playing and gave me his number. And therefore I <laughs> followed through with that and, took Kirk's oh, someone's at the front door. And took Kirk. Do you need um, to get it? I don't know. Maybe Kirk's downstairs and he can get it. Get the rock star working. <laughs> but anyway, I took Kirk ten pin bowling at DYRSL just to see how grounded he was. And there <laughs> Which was great. Loads of
0: success. And you just celebrated ten years of marriage.
2: Yeah, yes.
3: Yes we did.
2: <laughs> so, I don't know how that pertains
0: to the question that you asked me. I don't know. It's, I guess, you know, what, what, we're, what we're talking about is the results of committing, the results of going.
3: Oh, yes, the results of committing.
0: Yes, I'm going to say yes. I'm going yeah. to go and do this. And the idea that what you were talking about, which I love, was that, you know, if I say no, that's my ego self fulfilling its own authority on me, going, see, I told you you'd be safe. Told you. I'm keeping you safe here, champ. That's it's good, going to be champ. all right. Stick You've with got me. This. Exactly. And then suddenly
2: <laughs> you're in
0: your 50s by yourself going, what happened?
2: Yeah, why am I so lonely?
0: <laughs> why is no one, like, and the truth be told, like there's that many people you've probably met in your life that were probably be amazing for you.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I'm not a good enough. I'm not deserving of love. You know, if they get too close to me, they'll realize that I'm not the person that they think I am. Nah, nah. There's so many layers of fear we put in front of ourselves to validate where nah. we're at. And that keeps us safe and keeps us comfortable.
0: You're a a popular human being.
2: I really am. There we go. That's all right. I'm back.
0: When did you start to put together that all these things that you'd learned to get you to the top of the world in your sport and an unequaled achievement in your sport, when did you start to put together that these things may have value for other people and you may be able to help other people better their lives through the skill set that you've developed?
2: It's been an evolution, quite honestly. It's not something that I just awakened to one day. When the life lessons that I have, I can apply to everybody. It was more that... When you become successful, when I became successful, especially as a a multiple-time world champion, one of the the only surfer in history to win six consecutive world titles, people want to know, how do you do it? How can I apply what you've learned to my life and then replicate what you've done? And then I realized that people wanted to hear it from me. Now, the first time I gave a public or a keynote to a corporation, I received a formal written complaint. That's how bad it was. It was a dismal failure and so then I had to learn how to do it properly and then I realized the value in my content and the value in my knowledge and my wisdom and so year by year it continues to evolve as I continue to learn and absorb and apply new things and and fail at things and that's really the inspiration behind creating my academy. A shortcut the struggle and help people wake up and detach from fear and own their shit, really. That's what I want people to do.
0: <laughs> because clearly, you'd, you'd helped other women in the surfing world throughout your career. You'd mentored other women, surely.
2: Yes, yeah, I've mentored other athletes. I'd say it's been an informal style of mentoring. You know, I, I've always openly and willingly and honestly shared my life lessons. And I prided myself on being not only fitter than my competition, but also more well equipped well-rehearsed, more informed in a way where, you know, athletes would come to me when I'm competing against them and ask me advice on what boards and what fins they should be using and the conditions. I'm thinking, well, if you're asking me, then I already know I've beaten you. And secondly, I'm happy to help you. But if you're going out that ill-prepared, then once again, I know I've beaten you. So, you know, I invested in maybe aspects of preparation that some people just take for granted. And I feel that that was one of my distinct competitive advantages because I did things that my competitors weren't willing
0: to do. Talk to me about being prepared. People always ask me, you know, do you ever get nervous? And I said, no, I never get nervous. Even when I'm on stage in front of millions of people, you know, in my career I'm down a camera to millions of people. Mm. I never get nervous because I always prepare. No, I, so I only mm. get nervous when I don't prepare and I always prepare so I never get nervous. When do you know that you feel prepared enough to paddle out? When do you know, like, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm good?
2: Preparation is tactile. As you become more confident and more rehearsed or you've just had more experience, then you know how much effort you need to invest to make sure that you're fully prepared for whatever moment you're walking into. That, for me, though, doesn't wholeheartedly mitigate nervousness. I went to the WSL Masters World Championships a couple of years ago and I was very well prepared. I actually thought I was probably more prepared than the rest of the competition. Not only that, I had more experience because I was the only one there with seven world titles. But I had my boards down pat. I had my fins well down pat. I had, I had all the right equipment. I was surfing really well. I'd spent time working with a surf coach. So I had a real good heat strategy and plan and understanding of how to utilize priority. Like oh, I was well, well, just ready, Right. But the minute I'd walk onto the beach and put on my rash vest, I would instantly get nervous and tense and anxious. So sometimes, irrespective of how prepared you are, you're still going to experience nervousness. And I do sometimes still experience that on stage. And like you, I've performed in front of millions of people and presented hundreds, if not thousands of keynotes. And there's times when I still get that little bit of anxiety and nervousness. And to me, I channel that as saying to me, it's because you care. That's why you're nervous, and of course, I'm not suggesting to you you don't get nervous because you don't care. It's just that you've so you're so wholeheartedly congruent with your preparedness, then you know you're ready. And I knew sometimes I'm like that too. I know I can just walk on and turn on, and then there's times when I'm just I overthink it and I start to get a little bit anxious and nervous.
0: So hang, you just mentioned something that kind of blows my mind. As you, you're just blowing my mind mostly today. <laughs> like, You go out to the WSL Masters, which I'm assuming is a competition for people who are very famous, and let's see what's going on here.
2: (laughs) Over 35-year-old.
0: Someone who's had (laughs) seven world titles to her name still works with a surf coach. Why? You've got seven world titles. Surely you know how to do it better than anybody.
2: Because surfing is one of those sports that cannot be mastered, and funnily enough, Poor technique can just infiltrate. It can just subconsciously slip into your daily surf, for example. Um, Weight disbursement. And it's all about those little idiosyncrasies. It's all about the little things that can just tip you over the edge. So if I'm not landing with enough weight on my front foot or if I've got too much weight on my heels or if my head rotation isn't to the degree it needs to be for me to be able to get that full rotation off the bottom, or if I'm coming out of the turn with my left arm too low and not high enough. It's just all those little idiosyncrasies that need to be picked up by a coach. I taught myself how to surf. I had very poor technique in the early years of my career, which held me back. That's why I was number two in the world quite consistently. It was a matter of breaking all those little things down, letting go of what I know. So I don't profess to know it all. And I love working with experts because it saves me a lot of time. It shortcuts my struggle. But I'm also heavily invested in growth and improvement.
0: What do you learn about consistently being number two?
2: Uh, I'm really surprised I haven't been asked this question before, but I love it because there's so many valuable lessons that I learned from being number two in the world. Number one was I passionately disliked coming second. I loved winning. And so I saw coming second as an absolute failure. And that was because my whole sense of self-worth and identity was wrapped up in it. Number two, I learned that I actually had a fear of success. And that was a really valuable lesson. And it wasn't until I came second the second time that I thought, okay, what's stopping me? What's getting in my way? And then I realized it was me. It was me that was getting in my way because I judged success as being put on a pedestal and being rejected. Because that's how I judged success successful people. So therefore, I feared being rejected and I feared being put on a pedestal, so therefore, I feared success. So that were the two main lessons I learned from coming second.
0: Wow. So the thing that was keeping you from winning had nothing to do with the surfboard or the wave or the water?
2: No, nothing at all.
0: What's that like to figure out?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Back to the drawing board.
2: Well, I guess it's now within
0: your control. You're not waiting for... Conditions or... I'm
2: not waiting for the judges to figure it out.
0: Yeah, you're yeah. Right. this is something I can address. But I guess that's where you have to really break the very biggest Lego bricks that make up who you are apart to figure out what is it that's going on, why am I making the decisions, how far back does it go. That must have been tricky.
2: It was tricky and I didn't make it that complicated. It was I did a rebirthing, which is a very tricky thing to do. <laughs> I didn't go back into the loom and come back out. I just did a breathing exercise which is called sort a of rebirthing which is a consistent cyclical breath that's equal in as it equal out for 45 minutes and it transmutes energy because all pain in your body is pretty much stuck energy transmuted all this energy and had this deep awakening this very large awakening that I had this massive fear of rejection and so I started to analyze where is rejection appearing in my life and how am I projecting it as well as how am I accepting it or experiencing it And that's one of the things that I became aware of is my rejection pertained to success.
0: Clearly, this is something you did under guidance. I'm guessing you didn't just. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Good, good. I just want people to understand this is not the sort of. It's not like, don't go out and do the ayahuasca by yourselves. There needs to be a shaman (laughs) around, otherwise, you're just doing drugs. Like, you actually need to have someone. Not that you did that. I'm just trying to say this is. That certainly sounds like I'm interested in
3: doing
2: that.
0: that, If I'd only figured it out before I got sober. So you haven't done it. No, and I never will. I never okay. will. I know. I've done some interesting breathing stuff. Yeah. I've done some interesting breathing stuff where, with a psychologist, right, mind you, mm. in his office in Tarzana in LA, and um, my oversoul spoke to me, and I've got all these notes that he made after stuff I was speaking after I was doing this stuff, and then I would read it back going, I said that? He goes, yeah, yeah, you totally said that. was <laughs> just wild. Do you remember what was in it? Yeah. I don't know. Where is it? Oh,
2: Yes. Like the heat drawer,
0: you're gonna find it. <laughs> no, or, it is. Hang on, I think bring I bring
2: it up. I'd like to hear
0: it. I remember so this was the sixth of January twenty fifteen. Now bear in mind I was quite sick at the time. I was going through some pretty heavy shit and I was on a lot of had I yet started on all the antipsychotics? I don't know if I had. It's okay to feel the fear, know that I will know what to do. This voice inside me said that out loud. Profound. And then The same voice said, I'm in the unknown, and I know what to do. Mm. And like this I that is speaking, this is the, I guess, if you were Eckhart Tolle, you would say, this is the voice that is not the pain body. (laughs) You know, it was the the observer. (laughs) It's the observer doing the talking, not the observed. (laughs) Yeah, that was a wild one, that one. There was a few of them, but that's one I'll talk about today.
2: So when you read that back, how Mm -hmm. does that pertain to you now?
0: Um. These are words that came out of me, that came out of my brain after a very particular and similarly length of time. It was about a half an hour to 40 minutes of breathing technique that I was guided through that took me Mm -hmm. to this place. And I remember very clearly that it, it was me doing the talking. It was my mouth moving. It was my muscles in my mouth moving. But it was this really, really huge sky high angle view of who I am. Way, way, way above, like high above all the fear and reactions and all these things I've learned how to do and all these stories and rules that I have about my life and all these personal rules and, you know, all these weird, all the things that I've piled on, that is like almost the most pure version of me that is underneath, that then gets affected by all these decisions and fears and all these things that I've then since learned since I got born. And it gave me a great sense of confidence to know that that was there. It took me a while to mm. access it. And I feel I should read that more often, Lane. I haven't read that in quite a while. Because you do know what to do. Yeah, tell me about that. Tell me about that because <laughs> so often... No, you tell me about that. No, 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 but so often we convince ourselves that we don't, right?
2: Yes. Quite often we do. We convince ourselves that we're not good enough, smart enough, tall enough, enough. Yeah. And that primarily a lot of that comes through comparison, Either to others or
0: ourselves. Yeah. Lucky you chose a career in competitive sport. <laughs> and particularly a career where how you look in a bikini is very yeah. much related to how well you can pay your mortgage and put money in your super.
2: Pretty much, yes. Jesus. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Didn't go so well for me. <laughs>
3: Oh, fuck. It, was oh. it was
2: fine. You know, I didn't subscribe to that illusion. I didn't subscribe to that that bullshit that you had to look a certain way. Actually, no, I lie because I did subscribe to it. I subscribed to it so heavily in my early twenties that I went and did the most the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life, and that was get liposuction. Wow! On my inner thighs, so I could just have the legs of a pro surfer. But I had such strong, amazing legs, and I just fucked them up. Well. I chose to do something that I deeply regret because I wanted to fit in and conform and look a certain way that apparently that was the way you meant to look Uh, and I convinced myself that I'd done all the things I needed to do to achieve that but if I throw an honest lens over the top of that back when I was 24 years of age my diet, my exercise my hydration, my sleep like everything that contributes to your body, my mind everything that contributes to it was not (laughs) it congr- <laughs> was not congruent with what I was going for. So, hey, silver bullet, silver line, give me the tube, stick it down my leg, suck that fat out so I can have the look that the industry expects of me. Yeah.
0: Elaine, so, well, thank, thank you for sharing that. I I, I can't mm. imagine the pressure that you must have been under. This is 25 years before now we're talking. You were, mm. you know, still... So like in your early twenties, I still haven't finished. Yep. you haven't finished growing. <laughs> no, you know? I haven't.
2: I know It's outrageous. Just the lengths that I went to it was ridiculous. Yeah. And the thing is that I was never going to have the look that the industry were looking for. I didn't have the golden glamour girl image. I was never the golden glamour girl I've been bookended by the two most glamorous girls in surfing and that's Stephanie Gilmore and Lisa Anderson and I'm kind of this little black sheep that sits in the middle of that but what I do pride myself in doing is taking women surfing into a completely different realm and, you know venturing into big wave surfing yeah. having more of a political mindset and positioning as for challenging the status quo and letting people know that the way they behave is not okay and creating greater levels of equity and equality for women in surfing so that was where my value was. It had nothing to do with how I looked in the bikini.
0: I absolutely see that. And I can't imagine what it was like to have that in your heart at the same time as operating within the system that I saw when I was working with the Pro Tour and the value that I saw of women on and off the water, people who were behind the scenes as well. No,
2: you know, you're one of the few...
0: Yeah, it struck me as, wow, you realise it's not
2: 1981, guys. Hey. Like, <laughs> no, no, they were living in the 80s for as long as they could possibly live there.
0: I don't think it's okay to say that sort of
2: thing. Oh, my gosh. Some <laughs> of the shit they used to say to us, some of the ways they used to treat us, some of the things they used to do, like there's this great movie coming out the working title was Sideshow, but now it's called Girls Can't Surf. And it's literally a documentary about women surfing in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s and what we endured. And oh, it's just so unacceptable now. Yeah. And even some of the journalists, the things they used to write about us and say about us in captions, it was just so sexist and so chauvinistic. And it was just, yeah, it was unacceptable.
0: Yeah, that great line from *Puberty Blues*: "Girls can't surf."
2: Oh, <laughs> fuck you! Come <laughs> and catch a wave with me. I'll show you how girls surf.
0: Yeah, on a freaking wave twice as big as my house at Jaws. Jiminy crickets! Mm. Like
2: no thanks. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> well, cool, you've done it. So you, you know,
2: <laughs> no. Outside log cabins. I didn't do Jaws. Oh, I went log- out there, but I didn't catch any. You
0: didn't catch it. You did log cabins. My goodness.
2: Yeah, 50-footer at log cabin.
0: Good God, that'll that'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's something you do and go, okay, I've done that.
2: Yeah, it's like when I went to Owls, you know, I was invited to go and surf at Owls, which is that notorious wave off Watney Bay, Kate Salander, and one of the bra boys, Mark Matthews, invited me to go and be the first female that surfed this, and I accepted his invitation, not having very little idea. Absolute ignorance was lifted on this particular day. I had no idea what this wave was all about. Little did I know that it comes in from very deep water, hits a barnacle-covered slab of rock, and then rolls into a rock face. <laughs> and it barrels. If you're in the barrel, good. If you're not, you die. Well, you don't die, but you get hurt. And, um, yeah, I went. I did it. I successfully rode one of the biggest, gnarliest, heaviest barrels of my life and went, all right, here, I'm done. Thanks. Bye. Never going back. We're going
0: to retire undefeated. <laughs> get, yes. Get back on the. Going to get back on the jet ski and get out of here. <laughs> exactly. My work here is
2: done. Yeah, All yeah. right. I'm good. Day. Bye.
0: All right. You can't ever take that away from me. And now I'm going to go home and have a nice cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly
3: right.
0: <laughs> a lot of your work, and I, I get it. A lot of your work focuses on conquering fear, reframing fear. Why fear? Why that? Why is that particularly? the kind of central message behind a lot of the work you do? Why not, you know, what you can achieve or possibility? Why why fear?
2: A couple of reasons. Number one, people see the outcome and think it was easy. So no one sees the shit you go through. They just see the outcome and go, oh, you've got this, it's easy. So I want to break down the common misconception that it's effortless. Also, I had a very strong relationship with fear. Fear drove me. If fear drove me to become the most successful surfer in history to win six consecutive world titles. I won seven world titles. I won five of them in a state of fear. So you can become successful despite fear, but I want to explain the cost of living or driving with that as your force because it's a negative force. So that's why I wish to help people detach from fear because we've become wholeheartedly invested in it. Our media is constantly reinforcing the message that you can only achieve through fear that we need fear to bring the best out of us, and at times it can, but it's an unsustainable model for achievement and success.
0: It's a great motivator, though. Fear is a great... It
2: is a great motivator, you absolutely.
0: Know, fear can get you to the gym.
2: Yeah, so can love. <laughs> Talk to me <something> about that. <laughs> love can get you to the gym. Love can get you to win a world title. Love can get you to be the most successful version of you, but... There's still so much fear wrapped up in love.
0: Well, that's the risk of it, isn't it? That is the risk of it. I love my wife desperately, and Mm. it's so much of a wonderful emotion because, you know, as someone who's been married before, I know what it's like if it ends. It hurts. Terribly. Mm. But it's that rejection is always there. I mean, that's the thing about falling in love with someone is that if I – go here, then I'm opening myself up to the possibility of hurt. But the value that I'm getting is so extraordinary. I'm willing to hold it in my hand, willing to hold Mm. the possibility of being hurt in my hand to be with Mm. the value I get of being with another person that I click with.
2: Which is your why.
0: Yeah, she's amazing. And you know, to be with that, it's not without fear.
3: (laughs) Of
2: course. Yeah. Yeah. So fear is a part of love, much like failure is a part of success. Uh, It's a matter of Understanding your relationship with both sides of that dance floor and being willing to meet in the middle. So, as you say, love is not without fear. And if you're willing to take that gamble, I guess you'd suggest it was a gamble. I don't know if it's a gamble, whether you. I don't know. It's not a gamble. Definitely not a gamble. It's, It's a dance, though.
0: It's a dance. You mentioned that. I said, we talked about, you know, fear can get you to the gym and you said love will get you to the gym. I've got this idea and it kind of takes us back to the why in the conversation before. I think fear will get you to the gym, but I think love will keep you going back. Why is that?
2: Fear is exhausting. And as you say, it's a motivator. But if we leave it in the context of going to the gym, what is the fear? Fear runs. It runs a racket. So there's so many stories wrapped up in fear. So it's easier to connect with because there's so many layers to it, where love is the deepest layer you can reach. So, And it's almost like you have to go through all these layers of fear before you find love. Unfortunately, Well, fortunately, we don't do that until we hit about five years of age because that's when our brainwaves shift to the capacity to judge, criticize, and analyze. Up until that point, it's just love like love of everything, curiosity, love is everywhere in abundance. If we are going to the gym because we fear not being healthy enough, fit enough, we fear we don't look good enough, we fear that if we don't lose this weight then somebody won't love us, then what happens is if we stay connected with that fear for too long, we will easily seek evidence to validate the fear. So if we're focusing on the fear that I'm too fat and if I don't lose weight, then I'm not going to be worthy of love, in the event that we fall off the wagon and we put on a gram, that validates the fear. Or in the event that we don't get asked out on a date, then that validates the fear. So it's too easy to validate fear. That's the challenge. It's actually learning to detach from the fear and validate what you love about it yourself and what you love about your life and designing a life versus living it by default and that's where the difference between fear and love lies is a commitment to focus on one and not the other
0: it sounds to me like if you work with lane beachley you are going to have to spend a fair amount of time in the magical maze of magical maze of mirrors and have a damn long hard good look at yourself <laughs> and,
3: and be willing to go
0: okay i've been blaming all these other things in my, you know for why i haven't got what i want But it sounds like, Lane, you're very much just someone who's like, okay, yeah, that's fair, 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 fair. What have you been doing? (laughs) That's not helping you get what you want. Here's the mirror.
2: Have a good hard look at it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because we constantly seek outside of ourselves the answers and you answered that with your musings that you know what to do. Mm. And you do, but we don't trust it because we've stopped trusting. So therefore, we keep trying and thinking and guessing and hoping and expecting everything externally to change before we do But I pride myself on being an accountability partner. I'm your honesty barometer, And yes, I have empathy for you. I don't have any sympathy for you. I have empathy for you because I don't expect people to go where I haven't been before. And I can pretty much relate to a lot of places. (laughs) So I'm willing to shine a light on those places to help shine a light on your darkness and your pain and your suffering so I can shortcut your struggle and help you live a life that you love. Because that's how I was able to live a life that I love.
0: What what happens when you do that? What happens when you stand up and you know have a good hard look at yourself and be willing to own the the in the uh, how do I put this in the words of the fellowship of people that I'm a part of that help me not drink anymore to own mm. the mess on my side of the street? What happens when we do that?
2: Well, it's different for everybody. The classic say is your mess becomes your message if you're able to break it down and determine how you are able to overcome it and then utilize those lessons to share them with somebody else then it's been worth the pain it's been worth the struggle mm. everyone has a different relationship with their mirror very few of us actually have the courage to look in our own reflection and actually look in our own eyes and ask ourselves how am i feeling today it all comes back down to how you want to feel so get okay with that
0: but it hurts lane but i guess you got to put the lime juice in the coral cut if you want it to heal <laughs> Exactly right. Oh, <laughs> well, it stings. Beautiful. It stings, but you don't stings want those
2: burns. On the deep burn.
0: But you don't want the <laughs> th- coral spores to be growing out of your skin when you get home three weeks later. No, with staff infection,
2: that's what
0: it will lead to. Oh my god! I met someone actually when I when I was there. I met a photographer who was like, "Oh yeah, man. Last year I was here. I got all staffed, and my left leg was this <clears> big." <throat> like. Fucking hell.
2: That's yeah, a, a, and I'm proud of it. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I not
0: know. No not a great part of the world to get caught with that kind of infection in your body. No, yeah, long I way. did once. You what?
2: I had staph when I was in Tahiti many years ago oh. on my way home from a trip. We had no antibiotics or anything to treat it, so my leg had blown up, and it was scratches down my leg. And I found myself in a hotel room in Papa so on my way home from a boat trip on my birthday on my own with staph infection. Mm-hmm.
3: Miserable. That'll do it.
2: Oh my God. That was horrendous. That'll
0: that'll do it. Late, I'm just I could honestly I could talk to you for so long. I'm so grateful that you know we've managed to talk today and I'm really stoked that you've put this together because like I said at the start of the conversation. You are someone that clearly at some point in my life I identified with. This is a person with wisdom. This is someone who knows what to do. I'm in a real problem. I'll ask that person. She knows what I should be doing right now. I've Clearly, as I mentioned before, probably I should have asked the doctor because I was already a bit too far gone. But I'm so grateful that you've come to this point where you are willing to share the kind of knowledge that you have with others. And it's an extraordinary thing to do to value and then bring that value to other people. And like, I hope you get a lot out of it. Do you get a lot out of it when you're helping other people?
3: I
2: love it. Awakening others awakens me. That's my why. Mm-hmm. And so I love helping people. There's no problem or issue or challenge too painful. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to sit in it with you and work through it with you because it's the pain and the suffering that enables you to process it and move it. And if we deny ourselves the pain and suffering, then it just bubbles up in some other way. So that's why when I built my course, I built the awake Academy, I built own your truth. I loved every minute of it. I even had to go and get a couple of therapy sessions myself because it uncovered parts of my own truth that were triggered by the course. So I just love helping people. And if it can help one person wake up and live a life they love and detach from fear, then my job here is done. <sighs>
0: All right. Lane, as soon as I get a new hip, I am going to come up your way and <laughs> paddle a foam surfboard.
2: Oh, that will probably it. be the only thing Let's that I it. can
0: paddle on. <laughs> we'll bring yep, the kids perfect. and we'll have, we'll have a blast.
2: I want to reflect just back on that moment you talked about coming up to Kirk's Place and telling me about your challenges. What I truly love about that story and what I really didn't shine a light on is that you trusted me. Yeah. You no, know? And so I'm just so grateful for that trust.
0: Lane, I stood and watched in the channel – The wave break at Chopu. Now, for people who don't know what we've been talking about this wave this whole time, I know it's been a great metaphor to get our conversation going, but if you've ever been to London, if you've ever stood on a train platform and you've seen Mm. the cylindrical burrowing of the tunnel so the train can fit through, imagine you're standing on the tracks and that concrete above you is the water. There's probably maybe five to 10 Olympic pools worth of water in it and maybe 120 centimeters below your feet is this jagged fire coral. All right. And Mm -hmm. you have the balls to paddle (laughs) into that. How could I not trust someone who's faced (laughs) that? All right. I'm like, you're clearly braver than any person I've met. Okay. I'm terrified, but you've done way scarier shit than what I'm going through. So I'm going to ask you. (laughs)
2: <laughs> All right, fair enough. Thank you. <laughs> but you. I don't mean Anytime. to deflect.
0: I don't mean to deflect. But, yeah, yeah I absolutely trusted you, Lane, because you, you just come across as that, like you were saying, you're like you, when you break down the actual amount of time you're standing on the surfboard in on the wave, it's not a lot. It's everything no. else. It's the other 24 hours, 59 minutes, and 20 seconds of your day that helps you mm. win the world title. And it was mm-hmm. so clear to me that you, there's a lot going on. You've got a lot of wisdom, and that's mm. why I asked you. <laughs> That's what I asked you. (laughs) I'm grateful that other people get to share that. You're the best. Kiss your husband for me on his um, tickly, tickly moustache. and
2: I'll get his makeup
0: on my face. I love it. All right, Dom. Great to see you, Lane. Have a good one. Lovely to see see you. Bye-bye. Thank
2: you.
0: That was Lane Beachley. There you go. How good is that? You can find out more about the work that Lane is doing awakeacademy.com.au and if you want to buy her books you can find them at lanebeachley.com you can also find her on Instagram at lanebeachley she is just a superstar and um yeah I don't think anyone's it'll be a long time before someone wins the world title six in a row I don't think anyone's ever going to do that I don't know if we've seen I don't know I don't know that much about surfing now maybe but it'll be interesting by the time another athlete gets six in a row. That'll be an interesting place. Anyway, thanks heaps for being a part of the show. Thank you so much for all of the support. Remember, if you do uh, have someone in your life that you want to give them a bit of a surprise, you want me to do a little message for them, just jump on cameo.com slash Oshie Ginsberg, or just search my name there. And um, we can raise some money for World Bicycle Relief while we do it. So your friend or loved one gets a kick and we raise money for people that really need bicycles to help them get to school or work or something safely. All right. Have a fantastic week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you Friday. Thank you very much to my executive producer, Rachel Barrett, Andy my audio producer, Hallie Van Spanier on the socials, and, of course, the incomparable Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider. On the music. His Twitch stream is fabulous if you want to go check out Toe Hider. Alright. Um uh, what's going on here in Babytown? Is he running? Oh, he's just starting to roll around. No, he's just sitting up. Perfect timing, buddy. Well done. It's the sound of a white noise machine. You right there, bud? There he is. Alright. I'll be up in a second, buddy. Okay, mate. Where's your bunny? Have you thrown your bunny out of your bed already? Oh, he's looking for bunny. There's bunny then. I better get upstairs. All right. Until I uh, speak to you Friday, sleep well (laughs) with a bunny and a thumb (laughs) and dream of beautiful things.
1: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.